Telecast. Hi, I'm Justin Crosby, and welcome back to a new season of Telecast. I hope you've all had a great summer. The first show in season seven comes from the recent Edinburgh TV Festival, where I caught up with Newtopia's Jane Root, ITV's Bav Chandrani, and All Three Media International's Nick Smith as we chatted through some of the key talking points raised at the event, including how to survive the TV downturn, the outlook for brand-funded programming, and the success of the traitors. It's all coming up on this week's Telecast. So my first guest on this week's Edinburgh TV Festival special episode of Telecast is Nick Smith, EVP of Formats and Licensing at All Three Media International. Nick, great to see you. Great to see you too. Thanks for having me on. Not at all. Great to finally get to sit down and have a chat with you because I've seen you at various European destinations touring around the world, promoting and doing deals for the Traitors, which is obviously a, a real breakout international format success. The show... If everybody hasn't seen it, I'm sure everybody has, but it's, it's set in a castle and, and it sees a group of faithful sniff out the traitors every day whilst competing in challenges and building up prize money. Tell us a little bit about the session yesterday, Nick, because it was a really well-attended session. I think it was standing room only, pretty much. Tell us about who was on the panel and what you got to discuss in it. Yes, yeah, so on the panel we had uh, Jasper Hockendorn. I pronounce his name wrongly all the time, but I always like to do it because it makes him laugh, who's the creative director of IDTV in the Netherlands who came up with the idea for The Traitors a good seven years ago now. It took him a while until 2021 to get it on air in the Netherlands. Um, so he was there talking about the journey. We had two of the broadcasters that have had great success with the format. We had Saida from the BBC and Sharon from NBC which is really interesting because they're very different broadcasters BBC being public service obviously NBC being commercial and actually NBC aired it on Peacock their their VOD platform so worked for kind of two opposite types of broadcasters had Stephen Lambert on there who is the chief executive of Studio Lambert who produced both the UK and US versions of the show very successfully and Alyssa who was one of the traitors in the first uh, UK series who gave some fantastic insights to what it was like actually being on the show and not really knowing what to expect and me who uh, didn't offer much at all but you no, know, it was a, it was it was a really good panel really really fun Let's talk a little bit about the traitors and this this remarkable journey. You mentioned that format's been in existence for about seven years, but I guess over in the last two years, it's really exploded around the world. So take us back to the Netherlands and IDTV and who was the first commissioned by and how did it then spin out and how did you get involved? So it's something that I'd known about for a number of years. Jasper had been talking to me about the idea and saying, like, I think there's something in this. And he pitched various versions of it to me. And I was always interested, but I didn't feel he quite grasped it. At one stage, it was called The Mutineers, which, you know, you could never really imagine as being a big format title around the world. And it was set on a boat. But the, the core concept of it, there was something interesting in it. And he kept digging away at it and he was speaking to RTL about it for a long period of time trying to convince them and they were interested but just not quite ready to commit to it and um, IDTV is part of all three media international yeah they are they're, they're our Dutch uh, production company and what really made a, a difference is that they uh, kind of 
I guess you could call made a pilot of it, which is they just, for those that know the format, there's the kind of the central part of the format is the, is the round table where all the contestants sit around a round table and basically make accusations and defend themselves from accusations of, of being a traitor. And uh, they played that with uh, the core uh, commissioning team at RTL and just without any reality just chose some traitors and it caused arguments and it and it just it was electric and that's when RTL were really convinced there was there was something uh something in it and they decided to to give it a go i mean it really helped because the commission came during the pandemic and you know some of the shows that were successful for RTL uh it was challenging to film you know things like survivor you couldn't really go and film although the idea was to film uh, the traitors in a castle in Scotland the Dutch guys couldn't travel to Scotland so they they filmed in a castle in the in the Netherlands and yeah it was a huge success from episode 1 do you think that the show was being commissioned was a benefit if you like of being encouraged do you think it i know you're going to say yes it would have been commissioned anyway but do you think that it helped bring it to market sooner maybe than than it would have done otherwise I mean, there was always interest because they were talking about it for such a long period of time. But sometimes you just need that reason to go now. And I think that helped that, okay, well, we can, we can record this. This is a show that we can record during the pandemic, during the COVID restrictions. So I'm sure that had a big impact on, you know, okay, let's do this. Let's go. Yeah. The BBC version was shot in Scotland, in a castle in Scotland. But you're saying originally the Dutch version, but that was the plan for that uh, show as well why, why in scotland um just actually uh, jasper talks about the fact that he was just thinking about castles and scotland felt oh that's a nation of castles actually i think he was thinking a little bit about edinburgh castle which you could never shoot <laughs> the traitors there but you know not knowing it particularly well he started in his mind developing uh, the show would be shot around edinburgh i believe it's now in its seventh series in uh, in the netherlands who was the first other country to pick the show up internationally and how did that create a domino effect that, that, that we've seen it went to belgium next um they very quickly commissioned it and then they were on air pretty quickly as well again it was a success there and it's come back i think they've done now three seasons so that was a success. i would say that but the kind of next kind of really big territory was france and um it was a a breakout success for success for mcs being their kind of biggest entertainment launch since big brother you know 20 years ago which was a you know a different world when you didn't have so many channels the internet wasn't such a thing so you know to kind of get to that level was for a new series was was really unheard for and that's i think when lots of people around the world really started to take notice and we've seen now i think 26 deals i think has been publicized i know that you described yes is the fastest selling format in the world at present how many of those 26 have aired so far and how many of those are options do you know off the top of your head none of those are options we we only ever discuss the uh, commissioned shows so they're, they're all going to series or have launched we've got a few that few of those 26 that haven't launched yet so for example um, we have Finland and Sweden and Germany all due to launch in September but at the moment we have New Zealand that's just gone on air Denmark that's just gone on air both to big success I'm, I need to look for some wood to touch because at the moment everywhere it's working and coming back I'm not naive enough to think that 
everywhere you know even the biggest shows and the biggest format hits there will be some territories where they don't work so i'm sure that will happen to us but at the moment it seems to be doing the job in in every type of country which is and for every type of channel from public service to vod platform to commercial a, a successful format is really about tapping into some form of common humanity that people are feeling what, what do you think is the the, the real secret source here I think there's a few things to it. I think, first of all, it feels really original. It breaks a lot of rules. So, for example, the audience know who the traitors are from the first episode. You find out who the traitors are and the rest of the contestants in the show do not know and the audience are in on it. And that kind of goes against the rules, especially what's been successful in recent years. Things like The Masked Singer, it's all about, oh, play along. You need to get keep the audience guessing. You want to have them commenting online who the traitors are. The opposite is true in this. It's about you kind of know what's going on and you, you've got a head start on the contestants and you're thinking, why didn't they spot that? And it's a very different way of, of watching a show. Um, it's also produced in a really different way. You know, most reality shows are quite heavily produced, you know, producers are talking to the contestants all the time and they're hyping them up suggesting that they might want to to do things here and there we have to be very careful in producing the traitors that there's really no interaction as little as possible interaction between the producers and the contestants because it's such a psychological game anything that producers say it changes how contestants play the game and they blame for example um, a contestant may come to a producer and say are traitors allowed to do X? The producer will never answer that question. They will just say, go and read the rule book. That we've learned that anything that you say, people go, oh, the producer just told me this. And, and then they think that... They form different... They come to different conclusions based upon a response from one of the producers. So, yeah, so it's really kind of going against um, your instincts as a producer that you don't produce. You just trust the format and let people play the game how they wish to play the game. Yeah. In terms of local productions, are most, if not all, of the local productions being made by all three businesses, or is there some non-all three production companies locally making those? There's quite a lot of non-all three production companies uh, making the format. All three are based in UK, US, Germany, Netherlands, Belgium, and New Zealand. So other than outside of that, it's been produced by all types of companies and we work with everyone. So we have Banerjee, uh, Fremantle producing uh, some of the versions uh, as well as independent production companies. The second season has been commissioned in the US. Is that again with Alan Cumming as the, as the host? Correct, yes. And Claudia Winkleman has had you know, remarkable success as, as being the host in the UK. Are we seeing similar success for hosts as well in in these successful territories because it's it's a very different role isn't it the, than we've perhaps seen it for a presenter of a show yeah and i think there's a real opportunity for presenters to to make the show their own you know a lot of the big hit formats the presenter has to act a certain way and um i still remember there's a great tape from years ago from the weakest link where you see all the different presenters around the world and they all look just like Anne robinson and they all have that same kind of the format was actually the image of the presenter yeah but when you look at the presenters of the traitors all around the world they're so different and varied like the french presenter is very eccentric and animated the spanish is really cool and um, the new zealand host 
is a really famous New Zealand presenter, but he had decided not to do a lot on TV for ages. And this is his comeback. And for your British audience, I'd describe him as maybe having a personality similar to Jack D. So you can imagine the difference between him and somebody like Claudia, the way they present the show. It feels completely different. So it's fascinating to watch the different versions of the show because they have such a different tone depending on who the host is. So, Nick, you've been travelling all around the world, as I said, with the traitors, and it's been keeping you incredibly busy. Do you have time to work on any other shows at the moment when you're overseeing the rollout of this show internationally? Anything else you're working on? Yeah, I um, from 6pm till 10pm every night, that's when I don't do the traitors and I work on the other show. No, I'm just joking. Yeah, no, we've, we're really blessed to have a... a a strong catalogue um so there's you know now that the world's reopened race across the world is is doing really well for us internationally and um, we have idtv's latest show the unknown which launched uh recently in the netherlands really successfully so those are getting a lot of interest but um a new show that we'll be launching for mipcom that i'm really excited about is been announced by channel four as alan must win like the traitors it kind of breaks a lot of the reality rules and it sees a panel of celebrities manipulating a reality show to see if they can make one non-typical reality contestant win a popularity contest so that one i'm it's it's really good i'm super excited about it all right well we'll keep our eyes peeled for that nick thank you very much for coming on telecast it's been really interesting hearing about the success of the traitors and uh Good luck with all the new rollouts and, uh, and all the best with your new shows. Brilliant. Thanks so much for having me. My next guest on this week's show is Bhavit Chandrani, Director, Digital and Creative Partnerships at ITV. Bhavit, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm really well, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Tell us about your role at ITV because you're obviously much more on the branded content and partnership side, perhaps an area that producers might not have the opportunity to work with you as much as the traditional commissioning side. Sure. So I'm part of ITV Commercial, which is a division within the media and entertainment side of the business, so the the broadcast and streaming part of ITV. We make money through advertising across ITV's network of channels, platforms, across content that we uh, uh, distribute. And there are essentially three types of revenue. There's advertising, uh, which is the linear part. There's VOD, which is the ITVX part. And then there's kind of everything else, which is my part. And that's kind of more creative versions of advertising. So from sponsorship through to product placement, through to licensing, how a brand might use a show IP in their world, through to how we monetize on social platforms. So it's quite a breadth to my role. In reality, what that might mean is... uh sponsored sections on daytime shows for example as well as actual creating branded content series yes yeah, so the heartland of what we do the mature part of what we do is is sponsorship and that's sponsorship of shows principally but it could be sponsorship of a genre uh, so cooper a sponsor mystery drama could be sponsorship of a channel so itvb is sponsored by tesco fnf so things like that uh, and that's the heartland of what we do. And that's you know driven by our, our USP is delivering mass audiences to the heart, heart of popular culture. But then alongside that, we have uh, what we call bespoke partnerships, which is where we create additional partnerships, often around shows. So Love Island's a great example where we have eBay as a headline sponsor, but we have seven other partners on the most recent series, ranging from 
Boots as a beauty partner, Google Pixel as the handset partner, through to Subway, who are the lunch partner. So we create kind of tiered partnerships around key verticals that we can uh, identify within a show. But we also create partnerships around our channel IP. So a really great example recently was Samsung with ITV on Saturday nights, where we created some bespoke ads using Fleur East and Ollie Murs. And when it comes to your biggest properties obviously there's more opportunity to have more tiers if you like do all of those partners receive on-screen branding within the editorial of the show or are we talking more about specific bumpers for example that's a great question so the headline sponsor is the one who gets the bumpers around the show so it's sticking with the love island example that's ebay and then in terms of the other partners it all varies based on who they are what the Ofcom regulations do or don't allow, and what works editorially, uh, very importantly, of course. Um, so somebody like Boots can appear in show because we product place their kind of uh, range of beauty products, so that uh, in particular their sun lotions, things like that, are quite visible on screen. Whereas somebody like WKD, because of restrictions around product placement for alcohol, will appear in the ad space around the show borrowing IP, maybe using ex-islanders who have left the show to appear in that in an ad copy that sits around it. They'll appear less. What's becoming increasingly important for brands is there'll be a start point to the campaign, which will be either be in the show or around the show, but it's building an ecosystem around that that allows the partnership to live and breathe far beyond the kind of boundaries of the show itself. So creating lots of uh, social assets, digital assets that they can utilize, creating bespoke content that might sit on the brand's kind of platforms right through to use of IP, as I mentioned. So that might be creating in-store beauty boxes like Boots did. Um, It might be creating a kind of special area within their app or website like eBay have done. Without going into any detail, how does that revenue share work with the producer for example do they all get a a share of those deals that you're doing right across all these tiers so the the core of what we do the sponsorship part is kind of built into our business model so the the bumpers that sit around the show on both linear and streaming for that bit we retain 100 percent of the the revenue However, increasingly, the sponsorships that we do are 360 and feature elements of product placement or licensing or digital. And for those elements, we do agree rev shares with producers, whether that's internal producers across ITV studios or whether that's third-party producers. And we've worked really effectively with the likes of Lime, Banerjee, Bandicoot, Fremantle, just as a, a couple of examples, where we're able to drive incremental revenue for all parties any sort of revenue is on everybody's lips at the moment because we're obviously here at Edinburgh TV Festival in you know pretty tough times for the TV industry one of the reasons for that is obviously the the ad crisis that we've been talking about on telecast right throughout this year so the obvious question first of all is how is the ad crisis affecting your business in terms of not only those sponsorships and those different tiers that we're talking about are advertisers looking at tv in a different way in the current marketplace or are they increasing spend in particular areas or give us give us a sense of how you're experiencing the downturn right now sure 
I think it's a real mixed economy. It varies very much depending on sector, brand, kind of what's going on in their micro market. Of course, we're, we're all kind of suffering from the overarching cost of living crisis and that has had an impact on advertising overall. But I think it is tailored to what each brand is trying to achieve and their specific objectives. I will say we had a bit of a tougher time around sponsorship earlier in the year. And sometimes sponsorship can be a bit of a bellwether for how the rest of the ad market's going to be impacted because we're working with slightly longer time frames than perhaps traditional advertising. So that was a bit of an indicator of what might come. I would say that currently, if not buoyant we feel pretty optimistic about where partnerships is at as we're coming to the end of this year and, and going into next year we've had some some uh, great partnerships which we haven't yet announced that have been done in the last couple of months we're kind of going through what we call our renewal season at the moment so looking at 2024 like i say if not buoyant we're feeling cautiously optimistic about how things might look as we head into next year yeah, and the, the, some of the headline figures I've been uh, looking at recently seem to suggest a bit of an upturn when we're coming into 2024, and that's presumably what you're seeing as well. Partnerships is slightly ahead of the rest of the ad market, so I'm not saying that we, we know for sure how the whole ad market's going to perform. I think there's still a fair bit of uncertainty as, as we finish this year. But from a partnership's point of view, yes, I would say it, fe- it feels like there are good indicators as, as we reach the end of this year. Ask me again in two or three months and I'll have even better idea of how things feel. I might take you up on that, Bav. Much of the conversation around Edinburgh TV Festival is, particularly in the unscripted area, but also for different reasons, we're seeing issues within the scripted sector as well, due to no small part of the uh, strikes that are happening in the US at the moment. But the unscripted sectors has really had a challenging year so far. And there's been a, a, a real slowdown in commissioning right across the board. And we've been finding that in conversations that we've had on the show with lots of international producers as well. We're now looking at producers, they may be looking to other areas rather than their traditional commissioning models to make their shows and sell their shows to broadcasters. Specifically around brand-funded programming, how has that been performing over the last few months for you? Brand-funded programming is is a really important growth area for, for us. But I would say that it's quite a slow one to assess. So it's quite hard to give a view based on the last couple of months or or so on. So we've definitely seen a growth in interest in this area over the last three to five years from brands, first of all, but increasingly as a potential model for how to make the schedule work harder for us. It definitely feels like there's a swell which is coming to say, let's look at this as a model that we can utilize more frequently. From brand's point of view, it feels very much about how do you create impact as a brand? How do you become part of culture? How can you develop social currency is increasingly important. So, So brands are looking at it as a potential solution for some of their kind of core business objectives to tell an interesting story about their brand, to try and develop a different type of conversation with their potential consumers that is slightly slower and longer form. So I think brands are looking at at, a kind of potentially production of content for that reason. And then for us as, as a business, we're just looking at if we could get X slot funded, does that then free up money that we can put into another slot somewhere else? Or given 
we've now got this infinite shop store with ITVX. You know, we've grown the volume of content, the number of hours we've got available on ITVX enormously over the last uh, 18 months. How can we continue to provide content and fuel the, the desire for increasing amounts of, of content within ITVX? And so, could we work with brands to take more risks, to try and identify new content genres that we might be able to commission for for ITVX that we might not be able to on, on linear. So, so we're just looking at all of that world and it's quite nascent, but we do see it as a growth opportunity. And I suppose it's, it's worth considering that when brands are looking at brand-funded content, they're looking about emotional communication, aren't they, with, with their audiences for their brand, not necessarily an individual product. So this is a much longer-term part of their strategy often, isn't it? I think that's absolutely right, especially given the timelines that you're often having to work with to produce a show. So you have to have a brand who's got that kind of longer term vision. That said, you know, there can also be key product briefs that, that kind of come through that hit the nail on the head for a specific need at that point in time. I can't think of any examples right off the top of my head. So you, again, you, you get a variety and it does depend on kind of what, what a brand is trying to tr- achieve. And for us, it's, in, from a brand side of things is how can we be earlier in the conversation so that rather than they come to us with either with an idea fully formed as, as you know we've had in the past tends not to work when a brand's come up with an idea so how can we be involved earlier in that process how can we then work with our commissioners and the producer so that we're all kind of in at the at the start, because that that's just going to deliver a better chance of of a getting getting something away and, and getting it onto screens, but b of more parties being satisfied or happy with the outcome. And we're also talking against the backdrop of perhaps the most successful ever piece of branded content that's just uh, come out, which is the Barbie movie. Obviously, I wonder, are you expecting a Barbie effect at ITV? Do you think? It's interesting um, that Barbie's kind of uh, become the tentpole for this because obviously we've had the Lego movie a few years ago, which I think was a, a, a brilliant example as well. And in fact, Lego have done a brilliant job with things like Lego Masters, uh, which is in in lots of territories around the world. This is not a new phenomenon, and there is something in those brands that uh, lends itself to to that kind of storytelling. That's not going to suddenly swing FMCG you know, uh, an FMCG brand to go, oh, I want to lean into content because I saw the Barbie film. So you, so you have to pick the right brand, the right objectives, the right storytelling needs in order to achieve that kind of success. So you, you talked about getting involved early on in the uh, conversation, which is key. So producers that are listening to this who are finding it tough to get through the door in a regular commissioning process maybe looking more towards branded content and brand funded programming as, as an opportunity for those businesses that haven't actually ventured into this space before what would be your advice how could they work with itv what would you recommend an established producers never worked in brand funded programming before how should they go about pitching to you do they need to come in for a meeting with a brand say you know we've, we've already got a certain amount of funding with a creative idea or should they just come to you and build a relationship with you and then you can work with them on finding the right band? How, how does it work? How does that process work? Sure. Again, it's worked in a variety of ways in the past. 
I think going forward, the first thing is commissioner still needs to, to love the idea. So it's, it's idea driven. The editorial standards that we have as a business are high. And so it has to work from a commissioning perspective as a starter. If commissioner says love it, but this is one that will need funding then it very much is next step is to come and speak to me and my team so that we can work out whether it's viable as a proposition from an ad funding perspective. So we get a, we have a quick sense of what are advertisers looking for in the current climate, what's a realistic budget that we might be able to pitch for, what kind of slot is going to appeal to different categories of, of brands. We don't have a specific formula and a bit of, you know, it's a bit part science, part art, but, but we can put a lens through it where we think that it's got a chance or not got a chance. And then we definitely want to be leading the conversation with brands. So we would far rather be in charge of that part of the process. We have relationships with, obviously, with hundreds of brands. And it's important for us that we're very much kind of leading that dialogue. We know things can bubble up in different ways at times. So so if that ever happens, just loop us in as, as early as possible so we can be part of that conversation. Can you give us an idea of a project that a commissioner really likes, but the decision that it's made that it's got to be brand funded or it might have to be more of a commercial conversation? What are the sort of factors that lead to that decision being made, whereas they like the idea, but maybe it's not one for an outright commission? There are key slots and parts of the schedule or risks that we might want to take and it's those kind of dynamics that lead you to an outcome of we like it but it needs funding so i think there's a a slot in daytime which we've identified as you know ideally if that slot could be funded that would free up money for other parts of the schedule so that's an opportunity we've identified and we've worked then with commissioning and with key labels to come up with formats that we're actively taking to market to see if we can help find funding for those slots so that's one example another example is and uh, i have to be careful what i say because we haven't announced anything uh, externally yet but we've got a format idea for itvx first it would go out on itv1 as well but it's an itvx first idea and it is in a, a genre that is not one that itv traditionally plays in so it feels quite risky but actually from a brand perspective it feels really exciting and it feels different to anything else we've got on ITV. And it's at the perfect time of year, I think, to approach certain categories of brands to see if they'd be interested in, in funding it. And the funding ask is not crazy either. So it's, it's a modest ask. So that's one where we've kind of collectively got to a point where we think, you know what, actually, we should pursue this and, we're, and, and we should see if we can find a, a, a brand for it. So, so that one's more to do with taking a risk and commissioning being concerned about how much money they put into something like that, which is understandable. And so therefore, can we work with a brand that de-risks it from a network perspective, but actually provides an incredible opportunity for a brand at perfect time of year? And offers you an opportunity to maybe play in genres that you don't usually play in? Precisely. And that's one of the things ITVX has allowed us to do in a more general way. We've leaned heavily into comedy, which is a genre we hadn't really pursued for ITV in volume. But we've done that and we've been able to do that because of ITVX and it gives us a bit of creative flexibility. So this is another example of of being able to do that. Final question is funding coming into programming is often led by trends in the marketplace as well now 
in this current cost of living crisis, we're seeing more and more people perhaps eating in as opposed to going out to restaurants and various different changes in consumer habits. Is that something that producers should put a bit of homework in understanding where the market is, not only right now, but perhaps where it's going to be in six months into their development process? Should they be thinking more as a marketeer at this point in time as opposed to purely just an ideas-led business? I would actually say it's it's slightly longer term. Given the timelines of trying to find funding for a project, then create the show, I would say it's probably minimum six months, maybe even nine months to a year out. So, so that's the period you're, you're trying to look at. I absolutely think thinking like a marketeer is really helpful for producers. So there's a part which goes, be a producer, do what you do best, which is make great content. So come up with great ideas, focus on that. The bit about thinking of a marketeer is just try and understand what a marketeer is trying to achieve and why they might invest in the show. And that, that's just a helpful lens, even if it's as simple as thinking about what additional assets can I create around the show. So instead of just thinking about the show, what else could I add in that would help a brand out? So if you're a marketeer, you're going to have to go and justify this to somebody in procurement or a finance person, and that's not necessarily going to be straightforward to do. So how can we help them, them do that? That said... And of course, the cost of living crisis is not something we should ignore. For most brands who are looking into this area, they want to be entertaining. They want to be creating that emotional connection that you mentioned earlier. And so it might be slightly less about focusing on some of the tougher things that are going on in life and providing something more that is offering a bit of escapism or something a bit more aspirational. That can be a way of approaching it as well. Okay. Finally, Bav, you're on a session here at Edinburgh TV Festival. Tell us a bit about that. Sure. So it's a panel which has the title Unbranded Content. It's being run by Brad Dargent from Ancestry. And essentially, Ancestry have had a great relationship with the production of, of long-form programming over a number of years, both as a kind of almost prop placement partner. Who They have obviously great technology and great database that has helped make some fantastic shows with ITV DNA Journeys is, is a great example of that. They've sponsored shows over a period of time, so they understand things from that perspective. And they're also funding programming. So Brad was really keen to open up a conversation to showcase kind of what they've done, but to show how brands can develop a relationship with programming in a a light-touch way that really adds value to the viewer and isn't about putting the brand at the foreground of the activity. And so that's kind of what the panel discussion is is going to be about. It's a really fascinating area for me because absolutely the idea, the content, the entertainment of the show, thinking viewer first, the brand's presence should be authentic, there should be a trusted relationship between the brand and the audience. All of that is key. But equally, in a tough ad market where this is discretionary spend that we're having to go after, how do you make it help that content deliver compelling ROI for the brand? Because ultimately, they need to shift brand awareness. They need to shift perception of their brand and they need to sell product. How can you achieve that in this landscape? And I think that's a really interesting area to explore. Yeah, it's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it, really? And and I guess it must be a tough sell for a marketeer, a marketing director, 
taking such an idea to his or her board when they're thinking, you know, okay, we're not going to have overt branding. This is going to be something much deeper. It, I guess there's challenges to overcome on and perceptions to overcome on both sides there. Yeah, absolutely. There is a bit of a leap of faith that the marketer has to, you know, really passionately believe in the idea and whoever's kind of making the internal decisions within that business has to trust in in, the, in their marketing team and, and their marketing department. You know, a great example is Shari Cram and M&S and Cooking with the Stars show. That has worked phenomenally well for, for M&S's business where we've just done Series 3 on air. And that's just somebody who passionately believed in an idea, understood how she could take that TX opportunity and make it live and breathe through her entire business. And that's where she was able to justify the investment and show the ROI. It's not just what kind of what went out on there and the media value that generated, but it's also how you take that newly created brand and help it live and breathe through your entire business. So staff wearing aprons, signage in stores. And of course, M&S have all of that available. Available to them, so they're able to do things that some other brands might not. But having that vision up front absolutely helps kind of get the buy in within the business. Yeah, well, it certainly works. I've got a couple of Cooking with the Stars carrier bags under my sink at home. So uh, the brand's made its way into into my house in many ways. So, Bav, thank you very much for your time. It's really fascinating speaking with you, and uh, good luck with your panel. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. And yeah, anybody wants to talk about ad funded programming, give me a shout. So my final guest on this week's Edinburgh TV Festival special show is Jane Root, CEO of Newtopia. Jane, hello, how are you doing? Hi there, I'm doing good. Good. I'd like to start by asking you about things at Newtopia, what you've been working on recently and what's coming up. Our thing is working particularly with big giant movie stars and A-list, scarily big people. We're out there in the world finishing up one giant show and starting a couple of others. So we're, that business is still, is still happening. We've also got a really great documentary series on Netflix that is going to be coming up in the next couple of months. And we're hard to work at lots of things. We're busy, but it's, it's tough out there. It is. It's, well, I'm, I'm going to come on and ask you a little bit about that in a second. So one of the biggest shows you've done recently is the Chris Hemsworth's Limitless show. Tell us a little bit about how that came about and how you've really sort of developed this whole subgenre of the megadoc and working, as you say, with A-list talent and bringing them into the documentary space. The beginning of it goes back to when I worked for the BBC at BBC Two and then at the Discovery Channel, where I was always impressed by how few big ideas you got offered and how many small ideas. And so I remember doing a piece of work at the BBC where we compared what we called our channel defining ideas with the other ideas. And there were often one or two to choose between, sometimes zero. And we had to make them up ourselves. Whereas things like feature docs, there were often 25 really great ones and it was kind of random which one you chose. And so when we started Utopia, my focus was on the really big ones. I knew from my experience as a broadcaster, there was a big gap. And that presumably coincided with a lot of the streamers, the development of SVOD and their desire for tentpole programming. In a world perhaps where you have three or four terrestrial broadcasters, tentpoles are still really important. But with the 
amount of stuff out there and the demands on people's time and attention growing kind of exponentially, the need to stand out and the need to be able to have a big proposition for the audience has grown enormously. And your background has been running a number of different channels, both in the UK and, and the US. That must have helped you understand what a channel-defining documentary show means to a network. Yeah, it, at the BBC, we used to do three press conferences a year, and you had to stand up and have one or maybe two things that people in the audience would like. And if you did that, then you were a successful channel controller. And if you didn't, then you were in misery. I learned that lesson pretty quickly that everything had to be about a very small number of very big things. And that's been my mantra all the way through for myself and other people, because really big things are usually really difficult things. And you put in the bar high, you sometimes struggle to get over the top of it. One of the talking points at Edinburgh has um, rather unsurprisingly been about the downturn in TV market in terms of commissioning shows that have been commissioned, particularly, I think, unscripted. But I think scripted is probably com- that's probably coming down the line a little bit for scripted. How are you seeing the change of buying patterns for both the streamers and the linear broadcasters over the last six months or so? Well, in the US where I live, the evaporation of several buyers has been a a big thing. You know, CNN closing down its documentary department was a big thing. Discovery being folded into Warner Discovery was a big thing. Uh, You're also seeing some of the smaller channels like Smithsonian go away completely. The more buyers you lose... That has an impact. You're also seeing the shift from people thinking about just getting people to watch their streamers and sign up to actually it being profitable. It's been a, like a major, major kind of mind shift. And before, nobody really knew what worked on a streamer. And now it's kind of, it's out of its adolescence. And it's, it's like someone who's left home and they have to pay for the mortgage and their phone bill. And they're suddenly like watching every penny. Whereas previously, life was a bit lovely and wishy-washy and who knew? And your parents were probably going to pay in the end anyway. <laughs> the commissioning boom that COVID, uh, I think, you know, helped fuel as well because everybody was at home. Everybody was consuming more and more content. Do you think the turbulence that we're seeing in the market now is a result of now the sort of the downslope of that if you like we're, we're on the other side of that commissioning boom and also we're seeing lots of different things you know inflation and cost of living crisis all the rest of it how do you think the market is going to change over the next 18 months for example i think there's a, a realignment going on people are prioritizing much more clearly they are you can see the streamers trying to get rid of having so many shows that nobody watches but are actually good shows which i think is a real issue i think when there was only netflix and they could rely on that algorithm which they were justifiably very proud of that doesn't work anymore where you've got five different streamers or seven or whatever people dipping in and out of have you know I'll be there for a month and then I'll go until the next thing that comes along. I think that's a, that's a fundamental change in how the streamers operate, which they still haven't really sorted out. 
you are seeing a crunch in terms of what do we have to spend? You know, how many different shows can we have? I think those things are leading to a reassessment and realignment. I'm old enough that I've seen this happen periodically and then it always, things settle down. I think what you have to do is not panic. You have to be tough about, do things really have to be as expensive as they are? We have been through a boom time, right, where kind of nobody really knew what anything cost. We were in a, you know, all-you-can-eat buffet. And I think it's strictly a la carte now, right, and you've got to pay for everything. I mean, the shows that we make, we're still managing to sell big expensive shows but there is a lot more focus on how exactly are you spending the money inflation is no doubt affecting your production costs as well so that must create added pressure at the, at the commissioning stage or or du- certainly during production everything's got more expensive at the same time when everybody wants to spend less and that's a kind of squeeze in the middle it really is and people are needing to be including us, you need to be inventive about how you respond to that. It's not a think of an idea and then cost it scenario anymore. It's think of a clever, surprising idea which can be made at a price that people can afford. When we come to to programming, I'm really interested to look at, say, three bands of of programming within the script. You've got the Megadoc and the the Tentpole projects that you specialise in that we talked about. And then we've got the more regular unscripted programming and then you've got budget at the bottom which of those bands do you think are more pressured at the moment the streamers are always are always going to look for tempo shows I, i would imagine it's very important for their their shows to stand out but do you think it's the producers that are specializing in budget or that mid-range that, that are more at risk at the moment? It's always the middle that gets squeezed. I think historically that's always what happens. It's the ones in the middle can go smaller and that's really hard for the people making those shows but that's, that's where the pressure comes. If you're ma- already making a budget show, you've built budget into your thinking. From the, you, know, you had a budget idea and then you work at that and those things are really hard to make with very little leeway for anything going wrong. But if you create a cost-effective show, you know what you're doing. I think it's the middle area where it's just hard. I think life is hard for a lot of people, really. And the margins, the pressure on production fees, the pressure on you know, what you could get, what you could get a broadcaster to pay for. Uh, we really are aware of the, the pressure not to pay for executive producers, even if they're paying, even if they're working three, four Something goes wrong five, six, seven days a week on a project. Broadcaster doesn't pay, the production company has to pay. In most cases, not all, but in a lot of cases. And that's really hard on most companies. Yeah, I, was, I was actually speaking to somebody last night about overspend and when a producer is working on a project and for whatever unknown reason, the spend goes over budget and often the commissioner will turn around and say, well that's our budget that's that's a lot you know you're gonna to have to suck it up i mean it must be an incredibly stressful production process for many people especially now when they're spending months on a production and they're seeing their margin disappear as as you know as they go been there, I mean, been there 
And it's really tough when it happens. It's one of the reasons that you, you have to have build up your reserves. You have to make sure that those rainy days do come and less and less likely to get an umbrella from a broadcaster. You really are. And it all depends on relationships and on whether they think that they in any way contributed to the problem. And occasionally people will come through, but it's, it's, it's tough. It's really tough. And finally, Jane, you've worked on running channels uh, and we said obviously uh, running Newtopia. What advice would you give to the indies that perhaps in that middle band that we talked about what what advice would you give them at the moment when things are looking quite bleak i mean there there, there are certain aspects certain reasons to be cheerful in 2024 i think there's talk about ad revenue starting to come back to the market but right now what what would you be your words of wisdom batten down the hatches you know make sure look at every budget be really really make sure that you have got room for that rainy day because they do come so be really super careful about that and still take risks the worst thing that you can possibly do is and i'm speaking having heard louis speak so eloquently last night is the worst thing to do is to start trying to be safe because that will kill you audiences still want risky surprising projects and so you have to cling on to that risk thing and as hard as you possibly can. So don't try and go safe because that's not going to help. And finally, as much as I support the writers and the directors in America, hope they keep striking for a very long time. Jane, thank you very much. That's uh, really great to speak to you. Thanks for coming on Telecast. Uh, let's talk about uh, very quickly about your panel. Tell us about which, uh, which one you're appearing on here at Edinburgh. I'm on a, the documentary panel, and we're talking about how documentaries get made and what the future is for that genre. And we're also going to be talking about whether you should pay your contributors, which I think is a big issue, and whether the streamers who pay for access with things like Drive to Survive, whether that is skewing the market or not. I personally think that there's room for lots of different types of program making to survive but they probably all shouldn't be called documentaries unscripted is my my favorite phrase to describe that part of the world jane well it sounds fascinating i'll be there following that thank you so much indeed thank you well that's about it for this week's telecast it's good to be back just a quick note to let you know that the super early bird ticket offer for the Telecast Digital Content Forum in November expires on the 31st of August. So if you're keen to snag the cheapest ticket deal, be sure to buy before the deadline. This week's Telecast was edited by Ian Chambers and recorded in Edinburgh. We'll be back with another show, same time, same place next week. Until then, stay safe.